Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Bruce. This is Perspectives. Conversations from a variety of faith and cultural perspectives. Today on the podcast, we're going to take a break and do something I've wanted to do for probably since I started this podcast, and that is to do a book review. So I'm not sure how long this will be, but I've chosen the book called Theosis. Theosis might be a word that many Protestants have never heard of, and so we'll unpack that here in just a minute. But it's by, the author is Michael Paul Gamma, and the subtitle of the book is Patristic Remedy for Evangelical Yearning at the Close of the Modern Age. So I'm going to read that again because it's a mouthful. We'll unpack even that in just a second. But So we're talking about the early church fathers, remedy for evangelical yearning at the close of the modern age. So theosis is a fascinating concept. So I went into this book already with a basic understanding of theosis. I took a course on uh, Eastern Orthodox theology, and so I was aware of it. That's why I even chose the book, because it's a fascinating topic. But this book comes at it from a completely different perspective. And so what I want to do is just unpack theosis, and then we'll go back and look at the book and some of the highlights and reasons why I'm highlighting this book in the first place. I highly recommend it. Right out of the gate, I just want to tell you, I'm only doing book reviews of those that I would really encourage the Western audience. If you speak English and you have an appetite for history or philosophy, theology, and meaning making, um, really recommend this book. So why? Okay, so what, what is theosis? So the word theosis, you think of the, the, the word theos is God and theosis, so becoming like God. And so this concept is rich throughout church history. Uh, many of us in the West, we immediately think of sanctification, uh, becoming holy, you know, the, whole, the pursuit of becoming more like Jesus. And so the two streams are very different, though. St. Gregory of Palamas, he said, the church's aim is the deification of its members. God's heart, God's vision is to create a people that not only act behaviorally in certain ways, but actually become by nature what he is. So God became as we are in Christ so that we may become as he is. So it's this process of participating in the nature of God in a way where we actually become Christ-like. It's important to understand that from an Eastern perspective, the church, the ancient church, defines or understands salvation in a far different way than most modern evangelicals. From an Eastern perspective, and so the Eastern believer looks at the Pauline concepts of justification, redemption, sanctification, as all pointing towards a greater reality, and that is that the Imago Dei, that the image of God that we each have that has been marred, broken because of sin, we are being remade into that image. Like Athanasius said, he became what we are, Christ, that we might become what he is. So from the beginning of the church, there was this understanding of deification or theosis or union with God in such a way that our natures were becoming like our creators. Um, I just go ahead and quote some of the early church fathers from Irenaeus, for example, steadfast teacher, the word of God 
our Lord Jesus Christ, who did, through his transcendent love, become what we are, that he might bring us to be even what he is himself. Clement of Alexandria, he said, the word of God became man so that you too may learn from a man how it is even possible for a man to become a God. So this concept of the eternal Christ, the Son, coming, incarnating into the flesh to teach us what it means to be human, and through his humanity, we can learn to become God. Of course, we're never going to be God in substance and nature. We're never going to be able to create and have all of his characteristics. But to take on his nature, we've been made in the image of God. And so what does that mean? From the Eastern perspective, that means that God has put his nature within us. And through Christ, that image is being restored. And that it's not as much thinking as it is existentially experiencing the heart of God, being formed and becoming like him. St. Basil the Great said, From the Holy Spirit there is the likeness of God and the highest of all things to be desired, to become God. That sounds sacrilegious to us, but these are the early church patriarchs. Uh, From the 2nd to 5th, 6th century, St. Athanasius, the bishop of Alexandria, he said, For he was made man that man might be made God. St. Gregory, in the fourth century, he said, Let us become as Christ is, since Christ became as we are. Let us become gods for his sake, since he became man for our sake. Again, in the fourth century, St. Cyril, he says that we are called to participate in divinity. Although Jesus Christ alone is by nature God, all people are called to become God by participation. Through such participation, we become likeness of Christ and perfect images of the Father. Last quote I'll give from the 7th century. This is St. Maximus. He said, God and man are paradigms for one another, that as much as God is humanized to man, Through love for mankind, so much has man been able to deify himself to God through love. So that might be a lot to swallow for Western minds and evangelical perspectives. I mean, God alone is God, and we understand we will never truly be God. But from the Eastern perspective and from the earliest days of the Christian church, The purpose of God creating us in the first place is to make a people in his image to share in himself, that we would become like him. And so you see very rich theology in Eastern tradition is also Trinitarian. And so it's personhood of God. There's the personhood of the Father, the Son, and Spirit, and that this eternal communion of love that pre-existed all of eternity that God has decided to create a world in which at the center of this world there is his Imago Dei people that participate in receiving his love and giving his love, and that through Christ coming, We have this perfect image of the Father and that through his life, we are brought into 
a real experience here on earth, not just in heaven, but here on earth, that the church becomes this image of God on earth. Interestingly, the book Theosis by Michael Paul Gamma only treats theosis at, uh, in the last chapter. So for the first part of the book, for 90% of the book, it has nothing to do with theosis. And I found that fascinating and why I really enjoyed it, because honestly, I didn't really learn a whole lot from the theosis chapter, but leading up to it, it painted one of the most succinct, high-level, but meaningful historical summaries of the Enlightenment, you know, the Renaissance period through the Enlightenment, the Reformation, and leading up to the birth of Protestantism and specifically evangelicalism. So if you, like me, get meaning from the history and kind of the broad sweep, and have always wondered, you know, how, how do we get to where we are? I mean, what is the evangelical church anyway? What he does through the book, and I'll just try and take a few minutes for this, is, is he moves us through the pre-modern era. So when we think of modernity and postmodernism, you may have heard those terms. In the pre-modern, or people might call the medieval period, from 400 to about 1400, you have a pre-modern world. Pre-modern in the sense that before modernity, so what happened in modernity? Modernity was the scientific revolution, uh, all of the assumptions that humanity had made up until that point were being unraveled, deconstructed, whether it's the Galileo or Newton, understanding that man really isn't at the center of this universe. And in fact, even the earth, you know, the sun is not orbiting around us, but we are orbiting around the earth and that there are not just one, but millions of galaxies. Uh, the age of exploration was such a tumultuous time. If you go back in history and read the fear that was um, capturing the hearts of folks, people were moving. Uh, there was mass refugees um, throughout the different wars and places that weren't safe, but also just the general fear because there was so much new taking place. All the mental models, the things that made us feel comfortable and stable, um, the exploration, Magellan or Columbus or uh, those that were finally breaking the barrier of traveling. If you look back and even, even at the maps of the time of what they thought the world was up until, you know, the 14th century, it was wild, you know, what, because the world was full of mystery and that's the heart of pre-modernity that there was a God. So that was an assumption, but the world was full of mystery how things work. So if you can imagine a world before, concepts of certainty and kind of knowing for sure things just were not, uh, they weren't baked into the way people thought. It's hard for us Westerners to even think this way because we're so affected by the Enlightenment. And it's important to point out that the church during this pre-modern era was really the center of the answers what little answers we did have about the cosmos and universe and humanity and diseases and all these things. And, and this is called scholasticism. So you may have heard that term before, but the church was using the Bible and navigating humanity again, since the time of Constantine where Christianity in 400 
approximately, the church was adopted as a state religion, came out from its fringes and where it was doing its most meaningful work, by the way, and became the adopted state-sponsored religion. And so as Western Christianity spread along the wings of civilization, so as Rome was expanding, the church was embedded within it. It was along for the ride. As it conquered these nations and tribes, and there weren't nations back then, but cultures and tribes, it brought with it its, uh, its knowledge base. And so the church was functioning as a central, uh, uniting, and sometimes even by force, um, voice in this medieval period. And so when the culture at large begins to move towards a more humanistic approach that says, okay, wait a minute, God's not really at the center of this thing. And this is what Paul, sorry, Michael Paul Gamma is unpacking for us as he goes through it, the book, the first few chapters, is that he's helping us see how the church is wrestling with humanity's cultural movement as it begins to employ in the 14th, 15th century, the scientific tools and knowledge explosion. And the church is reactionary to this because we're finding out, okay, wait a minute, what we thought was the true for, you know, the past millennia is being proven. This whole new way of measuring and testing and verifying and categorizing. And so the church becomes caught, is it going to hang on to antiquity and its previous views, or is it going to adapt to the cultural around it? And so we know through history, it did adapt. And so one of the things that the author helps us see is that the Reformation, for example, when the church steps back and starts to employ different ways of being and questions and categories and even approaches the theology differently, was that it actually was a sibling of the Enlightenment. The Reformation didn't take place in a vacuum. No, rather, it was an inevitability. It was the church adapting to the time. And so instead of mystery, we switch over to reason. And, in, and all of a sudden, you have the birth of apologetics. You have the birth of, of needing to have the right answers. And um, the, the whole way of approaching theology changes because things need to be logical and make sense and be able to be proven. And it's a mirror of what's taking place within the world, in the scientific community, in education, and in medicine, and all these fields. You have the church playing catch-up and adapting to, and so you have all these authors and famous people that in theology during the Reformation that are and the right place at the right time, if not saying they wanted to become famous, but they were the voice piece that resonated with the people because the world was changing and because answers were becoming more of a valuable commodity and, and certainty was answering the call of the day, even within faith. It's no longer this giant leap into the abyss, but rather we can actually know and, and answer these deep longs, longings and these questions in our heart through approaching the Bible as kind of like an answer book. What the author is doing is helping us see how as Western mental models are shifting through modernity into the 
16th, 17th, 18th century, and really the birth and rise of America. And it's, he's helping us see that the Protestant church actually was like a baby that was born. And evangelicalism itself became like a product of the American culture. Uh, and as he does this, and he is a Westerner himself, so he's He's actually a Catholic. He was a Protestant, born and raised, and then um, navigated more towards uh, Catholicism. Uh, and he's helping us just see why there is a mass exodus within evangelicalism and Protestantism as a whole, particularly in the West, where Christianity, if you look at all the statistics from Barna and different folks that measure these things, there's an increasing amount of church members that are leaving and affiliating as the nuns, he calls them, N-O-N-E. They are, they are spiritual people. They are people that believe in God, but they do not affiliate anymore with evangelical Christianity. And we know over the past 20 years, especially that there is a flood, an exodus in the evangelical church in the West. And it's kind of mitigated by the fact that we have all these mega churches, but it, the, the amount of smaller churches are just closing and folks are like navigating towards these larger churches. But as a whole, the evangelical church Pentecostals, Baptists, and all the hundreds of denominations in between are suffering and hemorrhaging in terms of institutional Christianity. They're losing their numbers. And so the author is, is asking, well, why, number one, and number two, what can be done about it? And so for the first 90% of his book, he is outlining the why. Why is this taking place? And the answer to that is that the culture that birthed the evangelical church in the first place was a response to cultural shiftings and changes of the time. They were answering questions that people were asking. And that's no longer the case because we're now moving into a postmodern world. We're leaving the scientific age where answers and certainty and, you know, living our faith through our prefrontal cortex, apologetics, you know, believe this because it's logical and true. You know, this whole way of Western approaching the mystery of Christianity no longer works. And so with postmodernism, which he does a great job of unpacking that as well, and what are the characteristics of postmodernism? And one of those things is, is the the detachment from these maiden narratives that were because there's such a distrust, mistrust of just like there was during the Reformation, a distrust in the systems, in the governments, in the leadership structures, in anything to do with power. Because we know as postmodern folks that the narratives are controlled and written by the victors, usually those that win through force or that have all the money or have all the power. But that doesn't mean that they're right. You know, so look at Putin right now. For example, a postmodern mind looks and goes, okay, he's trying to control the narrative. If he can win on the battlefield through brute force, he can control the story. Yeah, and the story is what controls and harmonizes through force a people group, a social structure, and protects those at the top. 
So from an evangelical perspective, what you have right now is like the Titanic within a deconstructing ocean of postmodernism. You know, this next generation, it has a complete mistrust for power. It doesn't move into institutions for answers and safety. It actually mistrusts institutions. And so the very uh, thing called, you know, evangelicalism in this church, this, this place of authority, this place of answers, this place of truth and safety is the opposite of what the current mode or ethos of the postmodern mind and heart. They are uninterested of things. They are not interested if things are logical and make sense. They are yearning, as the book talks about, they're yearning for a deeper truth than just what we can squeeze together with our finite mind. There's a, a, a moving back, kind of a back to the future towards a modernity, You know, postmodern is reaching back, saying, thank you very much, the 200-year scientific age. You did a lot of good, but it's not answering the deeper questions. Thank you, science. Thank you for everything you've done to advance the world and the many benefits from medicine to quality of life and technology and all of these things. But as a human being, I'm more than what I can think and this gets quite <laughs> philosophical and you got to get into Descartes, which he does as well in the book and into other philosophers that have had like major influences on Christianity and on faith. Um, so, and by the way, Kierkegaard is one of the reasons I love Kierkegaard is because he was caught in this whole movement towards making faith rational. And, and, uh, and other folks in church history have done that as well. But, Kierkegaard, as a philosopher, was someone who was saying, wait a minute, if the Christian, if Christ was really God in the flesh and he incarnated and come, came among us, then there's something wholly beyond our grasp. You know, we can't truly embrace this mystery mentally, but rather we can experience it. And so like the Trinity, for example, is not something to be understood. It's to be experienced. If our creator God is three in one, our whole framework of thinking cannot comprehend even that concept. I mean, same with eternity, you know, same with eternity. We have no frame of reference to understand something with no beginning or no end. Like we are limited as a created being to our own experience. But what if the creator God came in Christ, you know, this eternal God put on flesh, this God, this timeless being came and walked among us. And what if now the Holy Spirit is here and abiding and living in us? And so these concepts uh, have a home base in this understanding of theosis. And so that's where the author is taking us for 90% of the time. He's giving us the the 10,000 foot view of how humanity and Western civilization has been ebbing and flowing through these different movements, and that in the West, this whole idea of evangelicalism is a product. Just like McDonald's, just like baseball, it is a cultural phenomenon. And it, But those within it, evangelicalism, are convinced that it is some sort of timeless 
way of being, you know, way of doing church, way of approaching faith. And what the author does is pull back the curtain and show us, look, it is, it is a new kid on the scene in terms of evangelicalism. And why it is failing today is because it is a cultural product caught now in the deconstruction of a cultural way of being. Just like during the age of exploration, the enlightenment, the renaissance, the church was adapting. It now has the choice to either reject that adapting now and just kind of batten down the hatches and go down with the ship, or you can look for some lifeboats and reimagine what it means to be the people, community of faith in now a postmodern world. And so this book was really encouraging because for those of you that follow our family or just friends, you know that we've left essentially Protestantism, evangelicalism. We've been kind of wandering around loving Eastern traditions, studying. And uh, by the way, the Christian faith is an Eastern faith. And by the way, the author is not attacking evangelicalism. In, in fact, he would say that, that it was exactly how the gospel does adapt and become relevant in every tribe, culture, time, place. But when it assumes that it's found some sort of eternal uh, template and then begins exporting it around the world, that's where we get into problems. Because the evangelical gospel, the evangelical church service, the evangelical way of approaching salvation is a reflection of Western and particularly American culture. If you go back to the Enlightenment, it's about positivity. It's about optimism. It's progress. This focus, you'll see that baked into the gospel. It's about heaven. It's about victory. It's a, the Western gospel is a, as someone who has been outside of Western culture for the past 15 years, it is clearly, functionally, prophetically a reflection of the American culture that does not find resonance in many, many cultures, including Ukraine, and where the gospel's actually finding root and taking root and growing, where the church is growing in the global south, the global east. You know, you even have in, in uh, African countries now, theologians and folks rising up and bringing their culture to bear, bringing their history, bringing their perspective, even to the reading of scripture and how it's presented. And so... Essentially, what the problem with Western Christianity is that we've had the resources. We can hop on planes, we can run around the world, and we can just distribute this packaged gospel, and we think that it's just right. Postmodernism would say, what is right? That's not to, not to say that there's no such thing as truth, but it is to say that we're all coming from a cultural lens. We're bringing our biases to everything. And so if we aren't able to listen and step back and be okay with mystery, be okay with good questions and create space for dialogue, then we're really just peddling Western culture. So that might be hard for some of you to swallow, um, but I really enjoyed this book. You can tell I love history and I'm just flipping through it right now. So just to close, like why, how does theosis work with all of this? Again, the author is suggesting, and I'm not sure I agree this is the best way to go about it, but he's suggesting that 
by understanding that evangelicalism is actually a cultural product that's been birthed through the Enlightenment, the Reformation, and this, these ideas of pre-modernity, modernity, and post-modernity, that we look around us and say, okay, the world is shifting, it's changing, just like in the days of the explorers. There's a lot of fear, there's a lot of concern, because what was comfortable and known is shifting beneath our feet. And so as these churches, for example, are struggling to keep membership, no matter what you do, you, you, you add fog to your worship set, you expand and do another building project, or you, how many times I've been in church me- meetings in the West where it's like, let's change our church service order. That's going to be the trick. Or let's change, you know, some aesthetic or some outward thing or, you know, the, the whole attractional church model that says, you know, come and see you know, on Sunday morning, that is a consumer-centric reflection of the American culture. We are serving consumers. There's no difference between the hamburger joint on the corner that comes out with a new, fresh burger than the churches that are constantly trying to reinvent themselves and give a better product. And so we're not seeing church growth. We're seeing transitional people you know, seeking, like they are, consumers in the West, looking for something more. And so the answer is not for these evangelical churches to somehow come up with a better service, but rather to step back, according to the author, and look at theosis, look at this existential, mysterious way of approaching community, that God is a person, and he has a community of persons within himself, and that we have been made in that image of personhood. And so that through intimacy with others, we actually know ourselves, that through community and a sense of deep communal sharing of our lives together, of our vulnerabilities and our brokenness and our hopes and dreams, we are more accurately reflecting the Imago Dei, and then we are becoming the very church that God intended for all time in all cultures. The model needs to continue to shape and change. So the question is for the evangelical church or any community that gathers, is that our priority? Are we creating a space when we gather together where the foreigner, where the refugee, where the, the poor, the marginalized, those that maybe aren't welcome in society for whatever reasons, they find home base for their soul. And they find the reflection of the triune God being formed really, truly, ontologically in our midst together, not theoretically but they're experiencing it because if we're not that welcoming space, are we really the church? If people come and feel they have to behave before they belong, are we really the church? Are we, are we the Imago Dei? Are we the reflection of Jesus Christ who came for all of us? And if we're married to a particular denomination or a way of thinking that we just have this timeless way of doing church, Again, even saying doing church is a Western way of thinking. It's not doing, it's being. It's being the community of Christ on earth, a welcoming space 
if we're not able to reimagine what that looks like in our neighborhoods, on our streets, in our cities, then we are going to just continually see these buildings close, which might be the best thing ever happened, but we're going to see the Titanic continue to sink. And the author would say, well, it should, it's good that it sinks. This is the, the, the fact that folks are leaving is means that the Holy spirit is re enthusing the body of Christ to shape together in ways that answer the questions of postmodernism. And I'm sure in another 100, 200 years, whatever comes about in terms of a model will need to be shaken and shifted again and probably will need to be done less because things are speeding up so quickly. It's probably in another 10 years. But I hope that gives you a little insight into the book and to really the idea that God's so amazing he had this dream of a people, and that people can translate and incarnate into any time, any space, in any place around the world. If the people of God are listening and in loving fellowship with one another and not tied too tightly and holding with a firm grip their identity to whatever culture they may be in. And Ukraine has been frustrating. We see so many churches come over, and I call it franchise Christianity. They come over like a McDonald's. They have church in a box. They set it up. There's their Sunday. There's their... And these Ukrainians, they, they adopt it. They adopt the outward shell without any, for many of them, without any of the etern- internal um, discipleship. They, they, they never had seasons of knowing what it's like to journey with people what it's like to have home groups and what it's like to have, you know, healthy leadership communities and all they get is the outward structure. And so they are perfect at just implementing it, but it's lacking the heart of what is already there inside Slavic culture. They already know how to do community. They do it beautifully. And so instead of bringing over our hyper individualistic heaven focused, you know, resurrection focused, instead of the imminent incarnational Christ, the life of Christ, we're so focused in the West on just heaven, you know, where, where throughout church history, it's been, how about we focus on earth? Christ came to us. God became flesh and shows us what it like, what it's like to be human. In Slavic culture, they know how to do community. What would it look like? Unfettered, you know, the good news of Jesus Christ, unfettered, unstructured, we don't bring over all of these, okay, we meet on Sunday and here's the pastor and here's the deacon board and we sing before, you know, all of this stuff. There's nothing wrong with it, but it is a reflection, according to the author that I agree with, of a Western model of church that was birthed out of the Enlightenment and no longer is answering the deepest yearnings and questions of a postmodern world, that the questions being asked are deriving from a yearning that is beyond the capacity of our ability to think that we're more than just the sum of our thoughts. And I just want to quote here in closing, this is from uh, Callistus Ware. It says, the study of words should give place to an immediate dialogue 
with the living word himself. And that, I think, captures the heart of theosis and why the author suggests that theosis is the answer to the yearning because it's not just more study. It's not just more logic, more enlightenment ways of approaching God. I'll stop there. I hope you enjoyed this book review. Again, it's Theosis by Michael Paul Gamma, Patristic Remedy for the Evangelical Yearning at the Close of the Modern Age. I'll put the link in the comments. And if you have any comments, questions, give me a shout. Thanks for listening. And I will see you again next week. Thanks. Thanks.